0: Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. We want to thank everyone who has listened to our first two episodes and those that have been interactive with us. We've gotten lots of great feedback, some episode suggestions, and some really cool connections to our stories.
1: Yeah, I had a friend um, comment on one of the posts that her husband is a distant relative to Buster Putt, the serial killer from our second episode. However, I know him, and he is a super cool dude, unlike Buster Putt. Um, And then another friend texted me that her husband's great-grandfather was adopted out by Georgia Tan, the baby thief from our first episode. And their family is actually planning on doing more research into his history to see what they can find out. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is And then before the podcast even started and we were talking about writing this story, I had someone tell me that they had a surprise family member uh, who was given to Georgia Tan and adopted out to a lovely couple and then 70 or so years later became connected to her birth family through one of the Ancestry websites. So I think that's an amazing story. Yeah, it is. So keep sending in story ideas, thoughts, connections, or just general chatter if you'd like and we'd love to hear from you. All right. So, Alan, where is my favorite place to go on a Sunday morning?
0: Um, Cafe Eclectic.
1: (laughs) Yes. But besides brunch. Oh, the zoo. Yes, the zoo. I love the zoo so much. And if you go when they first open up at nine o'clock, the Memphis Zoo is one of the best places in town to visit. There are very few people there. It's not scorching hot yet, and the animals have just eaten and aren't tired of seeing people yet. It's magical, but I don't want everyone to go steal my idea and crowd it up. But if you want to go and have a great zoo experience, that's when you want to go.
0: Well, crowd it up. Just don't crowd it up at Sunday at 9 a.m.
1: Yeah, you can crowd it up any other time you want. That's fine. (laughs) But Sunday at 9 is only, you know, VIP time. (laughs) That (laughs) is not true. It's not VIP time. It's just me time. And that's okay. All right, guys, are y'all ready to learn the story of the Memphis Zoo?
0: All right, here's a quote from Nicholas J. Melroy in 1923. He was the zoo superintendent. He said, These animals are like my children. Every day that I come to the zoo, I say, Daddy's home. You can thank the payment of debt, which came in an unusual form, for the construction of Memphis's wonderful zoo. Albert Carruthers, president of a local shoe business, accepted an in-kind payment for a shipment of shoes in the form of a black bear cub named Natch. Mr. Carruthers gave the cub to the Memphis Turtles baseball team to use as a mascot. I guess they couldn't find a turtle with enough personality. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> as the bear got older, he became less tolerant of the noisy sports fans and began snapping at children. Mm. The team retired their live mascot and returned him to Mr. Carruthers. Unable to house the bear as he got older and bigger, Albert decided to chain Natch to a tree in the middle of Overton Park.
1: Like you do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Eventually, a log cabin was built for the bear and he became a popular attraction in the park. The citizens visiting the park started donating, quote unquote, wild animals to the park, although no one was really asking for charitable donations. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Beginning with a wildcat and a monkey.
1: Again, where are people getting these animals?
0: (laughs) Eventually, a fence was built around Natch, because I'm assuming that having a semi-wild bear in the open chained to a tree wasn't probably the best idea. Mm -mm. Animals, wild or not, still need food, so Natch and the other animals were being fed by a generous man, Colonel Robert Galloway, one of the founding members of the Park Commission.
1: Now, the Memphis Park Commission was formed in 1901 and headed by John Goodwin, L.B. McFarlane, and Robert Galloway. In 1906, Galloway petitioned the Park Commission for funds to help open a zoo in Overton Park, named after Memphis founder John Overton. After lots of effort, on April 4, 1906, the Parks Commission established an annual fund of $1,200 to create a zoo. The first true zoo, like the ones we know today, was the Philadelphia Zoo. The charter was approved in March of 1859, but unfortunately the Civil War broke out and it was not opened until July 1st, 1874. This zoo was the first in the country to breed animals that were considered difficult to breed in captivity. So a little precursor to our zoo. Um, But in August of 1906, the Memphis Zoo Association, later known as the Memphis Zoological Society, held a fundraiser that raised $3,600. That money, combined with the Parks Commission's donation, allowed the zoo to be able to buy 23 cages and a row of concrete bear dens, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was better than in the Parks Forest. Right. Uh, in 1907, Galloway Hall was the first building constructed and it held most of the zoo's animals. Galloway Hall held many animal habitats, including the reptiles, until it was demolished in 1954. Besides Natch the Bear and his park mates, some of the first animals the zoo held were native animals, such as foxes and snapping turtles, most of which were caught by citizens and again donated to the zoo. <laughs>
0: In the early days, animals would be shipped to the U.S. directly from the country of origin. As time passed, animals were acquired from other zoos, or zoos would purchase retired circus animals. Some of the first animals to arrive at the zoo, starting in 1908, were three black bears, a cinnamon bear by the name of Teddy, after President Roosevelt, six Madagascar monkeys, four spider monkeys, and one java macaque monkey. In 1909, a polar bear named Ella and her mate moved to the zoo. That was also the year the Elephant House was built. The first African elephant named Marguerite was acquired from Ringling Brothers Circus in 1912. The following year, the first Bengal tiger, Samantha, was also purchased from Ringling Brothers. Both animals were named by school children from a contest in the local paper. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. In 1914, Henry Loeb, a name that most Memphians will recognize today, held a fundraiser that helped obtain Venus and Adonis, the zoo's first hippos. Their permanent home was not completed until 1916, but it housed all the future hippos for 100 years until the new habitat was built in 2016.
0: I'm really glad the hippos got a new home, too. Oh,
1: no kidding.
0: Their original outdoor housing was basically two concrete swimming pools. And I remember even as a kid thinking... That doesn't really look like a fitting place to keep an animal that large. Not too much naturally occurring concrete in Southern Africa from what I've heard.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, Venus and Adonis sired eight babies in the first 20 years that they were at the zoo. And a little fact that I learned that hippos are pregnant for about eight months, but after they give birth, they will not conceive again for at least 18 to 24 months. So she is seemingly pregnant pretty often. Yeah. Um, The next large structure built was the greenhouse, and it was used for botanical displays. Not only did it provide for the zoo, but it provided flowers and shrubbery for the city's parks, hospitals, and schools. And in the 1920s, tropical birds were added, and more than 60 species of birds were able to live in a naturalistic habitat. And more construction of new habitats continued into the 1920s. A new monkey house was built for the smaller apes and monkeys. In 1923, the zoo acquired a round barn from the Memphis Police Department. It served as a stable for the mounted patrol. This barn and area around it housed the hooved animals, camels, zebras, and elk. And in the 1950s, walls and a facade was added, and it looks pretty much the same way it does today, as it did back then.
0: Up until the early 1920s, the zoo had four previous superintendents, but probably none more dedicated than number five, Nicholas J. Melroy. Hired in 1923, Melroy joined the zoo after he had traveled with Ringling Brothers Circus for many years. Using his contacts in the animal world, he was able to bring numerous animals to our zoo. He put the animals above all else.
1: As you might have noticed from the quote at the top of the show, he really loved his animals.
0: Uh, During the Depression, he would visit restaurants for meat scraps for the big cats. Uh, During World War II, he grew a victory garden to feed the animals. He would take injured and orphaned animals into his home and care for them until they could go to the zoo. He respected the animals, and they trusted him, too. In 1926, Melroy started a one-ring circus. It was the only free circus in the world.
1: With help from the Works Progress Administration, the zoo was able to expand. 1936 was a big year for the zoo. Monkey Island was built, where today's Primate Canyon is, for rhesus monkeys. They were housed there for 60 years. And they were very playful and mischievous monkeys, too. Apparently, it was not uncommon for nearby businesses to call the zoo about escape monkeys. And uh, my dad told me he remembered that one year it was really cold and the moat around the island froze and uh, all the monkeys got loose and ran amok, like Little like Reese's Jumanji. Like Jumanji. Jumanji <laughs> happened. Yes. <laughs> that would be so awesome. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, also in 1936, a new entrance for the zoo was designed. Ramel Van Vliet, the first lifetime member of the Zoological Society, donated a pair of Italian marble lions to flank the entrance. They stood outside the entrance for over a century until the renovation of 1990. And you can now find them at the entrance of Stingray Cove, which is kind of across from where the penguins are now.
0: Right.
1: Um, By this year, 1936, the zoo's population had reached a thousand animals. And the next year, the staff had grown to a whopping 11 people. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Larger birds were next on the list to get an upgrade. A steel and concrete aviary was built for bald eagles, black vultures, and a giant condor. There was also a smaller area built with cages for pheasants and Japanese silky chickens. Peacocks at the time freely roamed around the zoo, generally being chased by all the children. The bears finally got barless pits in 1938. It gave them a place to roam and a cave to sleep in for privacy. The bears eventually learned to do tricks like stand and wave in order to get food thrown at them by visitors. These bear pits were demolished in 2014.
1: And I actually remember the bear pits. When I saw them, they held penguins for several years as well. And you could go down a set of stairs and see the penguins all swim around in the water.
0: Yeah. I think I remember that too. Yeah. Kittyland appeared in 1943. It was part amusement park and part petting zoo. This gave the farm animals the extra attention they needed, and the children got to see an animal up close. There is also rumor that during the 40s, the original MGM lion Leo from the logo... Was retired to the zoo to live out his final years.
1: Mm, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Another famous animal would also be housed at the zoo. According to legend, Modoc, a one eyed elephant, was abandoned by the circus and left at the fairgrounds. O'Brien walked him the two miles back to the zoo and he lived there for 10 years before pursuing an acting career in Hollywood.
1: Really? <laughs>
0: you heard that right. <laughs> Modoc appeared in several movies and even a peanut butter commercial.
1: Nice. Good on you, Modoc.
0: You should have seen his, uh, his headshot. Delightful.
1: <laughs> oh, the 1950s saw another set of firsts for the zoo. The new superintendent after Melroy, Raymond Gary, started a big renovation in 1953. The first female zookeeper, Alberta Lawrence, was hired in 1955, awesome. which is very awesome. Uh, in 1957, Elvis donated a baby wallaby to the zoo. Uh, while he was filming a movie in Australia, some fans had given him a wallaby as a present, also like Australians do, I suppose. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, knowing that he couldn't keep the animal, uh, when he returned home, he gave it to the zoo. In the mid-50s, the African Veldt was built to house the elephants and rhinos and was completely open in the late 60s. And then finally, in 1959, the zoo's aquarium was completed. It housed local fish as well as marine life from around the world. And this is currently the oldest building still in use at the zoo today.
0: Obviously the oldest building. Yes. Uh, 1960 was also a big year for the zoo as it became finally desegregated.
1: Yay, that's awesome. Yeah, no kidding.
0: Uh, Prior to this time, African-Americans could only visit the zoo one day a week, originally on Thursday, right? Originally on Thursday, but it was eventually changed to Tuesday. Expansions from the zoo's renovation were temporarily put on hold in the early 1960s when the city tried to route Interstate 40 through the park. Although there were plans drawn up as to how to expand the zoo with the interstate through it, luckily the citizens to preserve Overton Park won the fight to keep the interstate clear of the zoo.
1: Because I can't imagine the park and the zoo with the craziness of I. I forty through it. It had been terrible for the animals, not to mention our neighborhood. Yeah,
0: no kidding. Yeah. By the late sixties, the primate house was completed. This included enclosures for twenty-two different primates and a kitchen to prepare the food. A glass window was installed so that visitors could see how the foods were prepared. Nineteen sixty-eight was the first year the zoo started charging admission. Until that point, the zoo had been a free attraction for Memphis citizens. The new admission cost was $0.55 for adults, but children were still free. The price would increase a few years later to $0.75 for adults and $0.25 for children.
1: The 1970s saw a shift from a zoo that provided entertainment to one that also provided education. In 1971, the Mobile Zoo was created. It spread the message of the zoo to schools, organizations, and communities that might not know all the stuff the zoo had to offer. The staff would discuss the importance of protecting wildlife, as well as offer up-close experiences with some of the animals. The following year, ZAP, the Zoo Action Patrol, was created to provide information to visitors and help protect animals from mistreatment. Zoo employees were very passionate about their animals. For instance, uh, there's one story I read of an employee named Debbie Blackwell and she saw a baby giraffe stuck in a fence. Without hesitation, she immediately jumped into the enclosure to help get it free. The mom and giraffe, not knowing what this human was doing to her baby, kicked Blackwell, injuring her and knocking her unconscious. She never recovered, and Blackwell was in a coma for 20 years before passing in 1996. She was just hanging on. She was, and that's some incredible dedication.
0: A local celebrity, Tom the Tiger, the Memphis State Tigers mascot, was also housed at the zoo and would accompany the team to all their games. The name Tom was actually an acronym that stood for Tigers of Memphis. I didn't know that until this research, actually.
1: Me either, and I went there twice. (laughs) Me too. In
0: 1975, the first Safari Express made its maiden voyage around the zoo. It was a train that would carry 20 passengers on a half-mile tour around the zoo. Now visitors can see the entire zoo by tram if they could not walk it. In 1976, Charles Wilson became the new director of the zoo. He had four philosophies for the zoo and how it should be run. The zoo was to provide conservation, research, education, and recreation. The zoo's name was also officially changed to Memphis Zoo and Aquarium. In 1979, the old Pachyderm building was converted into an education center and library. It centers around zoo history and has up-to-date information on trends in animal care and scientific study. The zoo participates in the Species Survival Plan, which helps focus on those animals in danger of extinction in the wild. The program helps to maintain healthy and genetically diverse animal populations within the zoo community.
1: The 1980s saw some minor renovations in the early part of the decade, and the aquarium also got a renovation which it could really use some sprucing up now, but I did read somewhere that that's part of the next renovation segment. So that's awesome. Um, Gates were added to the entrance and a master plan was being created. The first panda was brought to the zoo in 1987 for five weeks. I hope I pronounced that correctly was on loan from China and 240,000 people came to see her.
0: A little info in case you didn't know, uh, all pandas in all U.S. zoos are on loan from China, even our current ones.
1: Major renovations started to take place in 1989 and continued for the next 20 years. By 1990, the front entrance had been redesigned with an Egyptian theme. By 1993, cat country opened and the big cats were able to feel grass under their feet for the first time ever. Uh-huh. Yay, that's awesome. Um, The zoo houses seven species of cats that are endangered, and their former home was renovated and turned into the Cat House Cafe the following year.
0: 1995 was another big year for new exhibits at the zoo. Uh, The following opened up that year. Uh, Primate Canyon, which was more open and natural enclosures for the monkeys. Once Upon a Farm, which was the new petting zoo and educational center animals of the night which was formerly the primate house converted to habitats for nocturnal animals and tara's favorite exhibit in the zoo yes
1: i love bats
0: (laughs) so those were all completed that year in 1998 the dragon's lair was completed for the komodo dragons and a new animal hospital was also created in each area for sick or injured animals keeping each apart so they could heal and recover The new century brought more new, exciting, and realistic habitats. In 2002, China opened with a focus on 15 species native to China with an emphasis on conservation and research. The following year, Chuck Brady was named the new president of the zoo, and a pair of giant pandas, Yaya and Lili, arrived from China. They are still in our zoo now.
1: While construction on the Northwest Passage started in 2004, it was not completed for another two years. This area houses animals from the Pacific Northwest and also shows a history of Native Americans from the northwestern part of the U.S. You can find polar bears, black bears, bald eagles, a raven, and the magical sea lion show in the Northwest Passage. And then a few years later, in 2009, Teton Trek opened as a lodge and natural area dedicated to Yellowstone's history. It houses grizzly bears, elk, and gray wolves. The most recent addition to the zoo was in 2016, the Zambezi River Hippo Camp. It houses hippos, Nile crocodiles, okapi, mandrills, and flamingos. That mandrill's mean. Too. That boy mandrill's bad. <laughs> But they're super cute in there anyway, because they are. All right. The zoo currently houses 4,500 animals and over 500 species, and it's also an arboretum with over 50 species of mature trees.
0: Since its early days, there have always been events held at the zoo to help with fundraising. Some of the early events were frog jumping contests and a Memorial Day tortoise race. (laughs) (laughs) But these days, there are yearly events like Zoo Brew, Zoo Rendezvous, Zoo Boo, not to be confused with the Zoo Brew, hopefully, because there's children involved. Exactly. Uh, Zoo Lights, as well as numerous daily events for visitors, homeschoolers, and also summer camps for all ages of children. And you can even adopt animals.
1: You can. We adopted a leopard and a polar bear. We,
0: we did. We did. We keep the leopard in the guest room, uh-huh. and the polar bear has a nice little pad out back.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Only kidding. They don't let you take them home.
1: But that is not for lack of trying. Nope. (laughs) According to the zoo's websites, today the zoo has two main goals, education and conservation. Their education department focuses on spreading awareness and knowledge on endangered species and efforts across the globe to preserve them. They offer hands-on and interactive school classes and adult education classes. The classes provide an up-close look at wildlife and conservation while enriching core academic standards. The zoo has research projects by scientists that have contributed new knowledge and techniques to the field of conservation biology. All research, regardless of how esoteric it may appear, is conducted with an eye towards gaining an important insight or tool, which they then put to work to protect animals.
0: The zoo's vision for conservation is to become an effective and internationally recognized leader in the field of conservation biology. Their common values are listed as, biodiversity of all flora and fauna, They all have value, and as a zoological and botanical garden, we have a responsibility to support their preservation. The destruction, degradation, or loss of functional ecosystems and the species that occupy them is unacceptable. Conservation education performs a critical role in explaining to our audience how the natural world operates and how human activities can both positively and negatively affect species and their habitats. Research and science should inform management and policy regarding conservation of ecosystems or species. Maintaining the genetic diversity and sustainability of our animal collection for potential future reintroductions is necessary as a hedge against extinction. The composition and management programs for our living collection must be planned wisely to maximize our impact on global biodiversity preservation.
1: The zoo has also implemented initiatives that apply the tools and knowledge gained from scientific research to solve real-life problems threatening the world's wildlife. They try to improve the security and stability of animal populations both in captivity and the wild. The zoo also has a Go Green initiative that helps make the zoo more sustainable and spread awareness about how to be environmentally friendly. Our zoo was transformed from a place to house unwanted wild animals to a zoological conservatory for various species of animals. Like that kitty over there. That cat that you can hear in the (laughs) background.
0: So that's the story of the Memphis Zoo. I still can't believe it. someone just left a bear chained to a tree and people were okay with that.
1: And then other people were like, hey, he needs some friends. (laughs)
0: Well, he probably did need some friends.
1: Probably so. But it does sound like the beginning of an urban legend. Uh, but I guess in the end, it all worked out for the best because we have one of the greatest zoos in the country. Or the world. Or the world. But for real, we are like number three in the country.
0: <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed listening to the story we unearthed. And we managed to tell you a little story without without anyone named George in it. <laughs> uh, we realized after the first two episodes were out that both were about people named George. So we'll... Uh, do some we'll do fewer Georges in the future
1: yes yes um don't forget to check out our next episode in two weeks it'll drop on wednesday on itunes spotify stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast
0: check out our website unearthmemphis.com and on social media at unearthmemphis on instagram and facebook.com slash unearth901 unearth901 on twitter or email us at unearthmemphis at gmail.com
1: drop us a comment a story idea uh, a correction anything we just to chat just to chat we we love hearing from people
0: and here's our little disclaimer we do every episode we are not historians we're simply two people who are interested in memphis history we've done research and we are trying to provide accurate history as best we can there's a possibility that some of the facts may be incorrect but we have tried to verify all the info so we are not putting out any untrue information to the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to, any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles, book titles, etc. we use to gather our information.
1: All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.
0: Unearth Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.